0: Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia.
1: We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs.
2: Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job.
1: Yeah, it worked for us.
0: To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. Spoken by Jay Green, L Nobbs and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and we're back. Uh, we didn't go away, and no, to answer the, the question that one person uh, asked me recently. It was nothing to do with ASIC. Uh, we were just doing other things. I was in London. And David, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Paul, how are you? I'm good. Uh, David visited Adelaide, uh, and we also had a company thing, so um, it's been a few weeks since our last show. Uh, but to make it up, we've got a ripper episode ahead with an excellent guest. It's Robert Rennie, uh, Global Head of Market Strategy at Westpac. Welcome to the show, Rob.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Uh, we're delighted to have uh, Rob on the show. Um, he's uh, uh, an excellent analyst, and also he's got 30 years uh, in markets under his belt, um, including eight years at Morgan Stanley and That's right. uh, yeah, yes. a variety yeah. of other places. Yes, yes. Here I am in Sydney. That's right. And uh, certainly Australia at the moment when you're um, looking at global strategy, very interesting place to be. Uh, look, we're going to look at the domestic economy. We're going to start there, uh, the rates outlook, um, and we'll dive then into the increasingly strong-looking picture at the global level. Mm. Um, but we're going to start with what everybody's going to talking about at the moment Not that the topic is much different for those of us who have lived in Australia's biggest city for any length of time, but the conversation has definitely taken a turn, and that's the Sydney property market, I promise. We're not going to spend the whole show on this, uh, just in case you're worried that it's going to turn into a Balmain barbecue, uh, but it really is a focus <laughs> in markets right now, so uh, so let's dive in. Okay, Dave, clearance rates um, have been falling, and now prices are actually going backwards. Yes, so
2: I uh, know it depends if you want to seasonally adjust. You can say there's been uh, down for three months now. Or no, just the nominal terms have been down for two months. Uh, auction clearance rates below 60% for two weeks in a row. Uh, not unheard of. It only happened a couple of years ago, but... Um, yeah, it just seems to be slowing down. We saw some uh, some housing finance data today come out, uh, which was a bit softer than what the market was expecting, and yet again another big slowdown in the investor lending. So, uh, putting all the other pieces together, it does look like that the broader Australian housing market is slowing, and it's been led by Sydney.
1: Mm. Um, Rob, what are you seeing when you look at it? Yeah, look exactly the same. And to be perfectly honest, I think it was probably to be expected. I mean, we've seen a number of headwinds for the housing market here. Uh, clearly supply, focus very much inner city, high rise, one and two bedroom apartments. There's an overhang there. You've got to remember as well that um, the, the banking system has raised um, interest rates, uh, interest only roughly 75 basis points this year. Um, and even in principal and interest, you're up by sort of 30 odd basis points as well. And that follows uh, tightening in 2015 too. You've seen waves of uh, shifts in terms of lending guidelines. And at a state level, we've seen a change in stamp duty. Uh, it varies by state, too, um, and I guess there's a wave of politics in the background too. Clearly, uh, you know, given the current situation that we are in, we're probably a bit more focused on the fact that, um, you know, clearly the major parties have got differing uh, views in terms of negative gearing, etc. And I think that's probably overlaying some risk as well. So not surprisingly, I mean, we were running at 22% for Sydney on a six-month annualised basis. I think as of the last month's data, we would be slightly negative. And again, I think it's something that we shouldn't be too surprised about. Yeah, and I
0: think what has been interesting about this is um, these the the macro prudential intervention uh, appears to be working. Yeah. Uh, rates have been on hold now for how many months? Um, Four, oh, like 14, 14 meetings. 14. Yeah, 14 yeah. meetings. So, um, you know, um, but these the, the upper interventions, the speed limits, um, the, the, the LVR Correct. testing, all of that kind of stuff has been very tough. Uh, they've been crawling all over the banks, uh, making sure that they're adhering to all of these guidelines. And, um, you know, it has worked in other countries and it appears to be now taking um, taking an in effect in, in Sydney, um, at least where it was to be Honest, needed. It It was you know these you know twenty plus percent rises in any asset uh, on an annualized basis is simply not sustainable. Absolutely. Um, So um, you know, and a little bit of a pullback. Uh, But I guess um, the big question is, um, and I suppose what everybody's wondering is, okay, price declines, so
1: you unwind some of
0: those gains a little bit.
1: But where does it all end up? Yeah, Luke, I mean, that's a good question. What we have to remember here is we're not targeting house prices per se. You know, to your point, what we want to make sure is the incremental buyer isn't buying and isn't stretching their balance sheet significantly with prices up so high. So we've got to remember that. The flip side of that is we certainly don't want to see a rapid decline in prices as well. And I guess, look, you know, I suppose working for an Australian bank and being a property owner, you're probably not going to get the most honest, unbiased answer. (laughs) Uh, So there's a bit of a cap. The ad there, but um, you know what we have to remember is that there is an underbuild of property here in Australia. It's difficult to build property that uh, uh, you know individuals want in the right area, with the infrastructure uh, and the geography that we have. Um, so there is a uh, there is a pent up demand, and I guess as you continue to develop that infrastructure, and clearly in New South Wales, you need just need to tr- drive around Sydney to uh, understand how much infrastructure there is, and that lets. Uh, more demand going to more diverse places. So, you know, while I've been concerned about uh, the strength in the property market, and again, it's a good thing that we're beginning to see uh, prices leveling off, I, I, I'm certainly not a, a property bear. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, again, coming back to that underbuild, the structure uh, in, underbuild that we've had for a number of years in fact many years that is still the demand out there and as prices stabilize uh, and we see some softening you would expect to see the first time homeowner that you know wants to move out of the parents house uh, be given that opportunity and let's face it that's a good thing yeah and i think you know over the weekend
0: um or yeah um it was uh late last week um we had a colleague out here from from business insider in the u.s uh his name is brian logan uh, and he's been working with us here in sydney for the last couple of weeks and i took him for a drive over the harbour bridge and we went down the spit road in manly and it was one of the things i remember catching myself saying to him it was like so if you think about." it you know sydney property prices has been insanely high and it being really really expensive mm. um to to buy a house here when you come down that hill over um going down towards the spit bridge and just middle cove sort of opens, opens up, up in front of mm. you and you just see literally thousands of houses with incredible views um over this beautiful part of the harbor you know it's still water all the time um uh, it's reasonably close to the city mm. to your point some of the infrastructure Uh, Is obviously lacking, Um, but people put up with it because you know what? If you are a wealthy person and you live anywhere in the world, and you're kind of wondering where you might like to have a a home, particularly if you work in a sort of global industry where you might, where Sydney might be a place that might be a practical place for you to stay from time to time. Sydney is a very smart place to buy a house. Absolutely. Um, So you know. Obviously, there is the the issue then on the local community, the strains on the infrastructure, etc. Um, but uh, you know, at least it looks like now this um, this kind of runaway growth in house prices, which I think was becoming a genuine social issue, yes. um, and and it would have been uh, had it continued. Um, that well, it, it looked. Let's call it for what it is. It is a social issue. Um, but um, th- that seems to have be easing off and um, some softer and um, more sort of sensible um, uh, levels of house growth in Sydney are going to be interesting over the next mm. little while. Mm. You've got to remember, too, that it's a
2: cyclical market. It's uh, so many years that you've just come to expect that you're going to go and get double-digit returns year on year and, like, compounding. But it is a cyclical market and there has been downturns in the past. So this is nothing unusual. Uh, maybe perhaps the way it's been uh, – the mechanism behind it is slightly unusual. We're not, we're not seeing macro pro. Uh, in this country up until a couple of years ago. And that's what's effectively going and contributing a lot of this, start, this downturn. So, um. Well, yes, it's a shock horror that uh, the prices starting to fall, and it looks like the rest of the country is starting to go and see their prices slow down as well. Um, it's nothing that's not been seen before, uh, and there's a lot of lot of other supportive factors as well. You know, you've got to talk about population growth. Obviously, yep. we you know, New South Wales I think is growing about one point six percent per annum. I think yep. uh, Victoria is over two percent per annum at the moment. So that's you know hundreds of thousands of people who are predominantly going to capital cities, yes. Sydney and Melbourne. Um, so you throw that into the equation, it's hard to go and see there's going to be a, a major, major correction unless we
0: saw some sort of global shock. Mm, yeah. um, we've just published a piece actually today on Business Insider where we've spoken to a couple of real estate agents directly to find out how they're seeing things on the ground. Uh, really interesting. One guy explaining that you know people are doing their sort of mental accounting. Uh, and expect a re- one of the reasons that houses are passing in at the moment and why the clearance rates have fallen is that people have a certain expectation of the price that they're going to get. Yeah. Uh, they- don't get that, uh, and the house passes in. But yeah. they're finding that they just have a conversation, get the sellers to get a bit real about where the market's at. Instead of one point six, they maybe get one point five two or one point five three. Um, so they, may, you know, don't get as much as they wanted, but they're still yes. up. Um, you know, you would hope, or they can still at least clear the debt. The other really interesting uh, little anecdote we got was a, um, about a couple who bought an apartment off the plan a couple of years ago for five hundred and fifty thousand, hmm. and they came back to the same agent and said, we just want to sell it for 550000 Just want to, just want to get out, just finished. Uh so so pretty, pretty high holding costs there for that period. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, there would be certain costs <laughs> <Yeah>. as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so look, um, it certainly is um, a, a, an interesting time. Mm. And the other thing that this feeds into, I suppose, is the overall consumer uh, mm. outlook. A um, little bit of nerves about where property prices are going. Let's mm. call the wealth effect, as it's known, let's c- – call that for being stopped dead in its tracks for now. Mm. Um, but this is a super interesting area and um, uh, David, another pretty horror number in the retail sales data, um, in the monthly retail sales data at least.
2: Yeah. It, uh, so I've had two uh, two back-to-back falls in, uh, in uh, July and August and then a, a flat outcome in uh, in, in September. So uh, very weak, a lot of uh, know, cost inflation across certain sectors of the retail uh, industry as well. Um, and no surprise that it has coincided with the slowdown in the property market. It's also coincided with uh, out-of-cycle mortgage rate increases that we've seen. It's also corresponded with uh, know, high energy prices and petrol yes. prices now. Yes. So you've had a, you know, a triple whammy, so to speak, of, uh, of of headwinds that are going to impact, you know, and, no, you throw in the nervousness about what potentially may happen in the housing market. I'm not surprised to see that, uh, that sales are, are very soft for the time
0: being. Uh, Robert, I'm fascinated to, to hear your take on this um, because there are so many moving parts to the consumer picture.
1: Yeah, look, it's certainly, you know, as we look forward from a rate point of view through the, uh, the next couple of years, understanding what the consumer is or is not doing, I think, is very important. And, you know, uh, to your point, that was a very disappointing month following two disappointing months. So a very disappointing quarter. Look, I think if you look, you know, the great thing with the quarterly data is you can look at the uh, nominal, the real. So you get a sense of what's happening to volumes. You get a sense of what's happening to prices. And I think if you look in the detail, the message that you really get is uh, we cut prices aggressively, so we were down Um, 0.4. We see a 0.1 rise in volume uh, for the quarter, which is – Pretty much nothing. So if Mm -hmm. you are prepared to cut your prices significantly, then you'll see um, uh, the consumer turn up and buy the product. But when we're on the cusp of Amazon and, you know, all all the price – well, lowflation, uh, potential deflation that we're going to see uh, coming soon, I would have thought, that's not a particularly positive outlook. So, you know, I think the the message from the consumer is I'm not going to buy anything until I see what happens to prices into the end of the year unless – those prices are falling, you know. There's a Colgan family secret,
0: um, which and I don't think I've told this story in the podcast before, but uh, you know, get your notepads out, um, because this is important. But on, um, I think at, on Sunday afternoons at about four o'clock, uh, if you go to Woolworths, there's a lady who comes out with a, um, a, one of those, um, price uh, uh, guns, uh, and the barbecue chooks, um, go from six dollars to to three dollars at, at four o'clock. So I have been standing there, literally, with three other people waiting for um, the Chuck markdown lady. You <laughs> <eat> tight <laughs> <call them. laughs> To Come out with her thing, and everybody's there, trigger fingers ready. And she comes, puts the new prices on the chooks, and boom, they're all gone. Um, but it occurred to me
1: that and it's chicken sandwiches all week. Chicken then, sandwiches, <laughs> right, chicken sandwiches,
0: and you know, chicken surprise in the morning uh. for breakfast, and yeah, um, but. For me, it's a really good illustration of what happens when you think prices are about to fall. Mm -hmm. It's like how you adjust your behavior. It's like, okay, just going to wait. So everybody knows Amazon is coming, and um, we are, I think, reporting today. um, Amazon has a huge marketplace event with sellers on next Monday. It has sold out 500 people. Uh, We're going to be there. Um, I have also... We've also a very reliable source has told us that the platform is ready. That Amazon's yeah. Australian platform is ready to go. Uh, we have been looking at some of the price comparisons, or if you buy some of the Amazon goods and um, their their own brand goods, like for electronics, particularly like you know like HDMI cables yeah. and um, chargers and all that kind of thing, and they're at a thirty percent markdown. If they come in at the same price that they sell them in uh, the US and Europe. That's going to be a 30% markdown on what you would get at places like Officeworks and, uh, and JB Hi-Fi and, and all of that kind of stuff. And all of that, uh, that difference is yeah. margin for yeah. those – um, those retailers for those domestic retailers uh, and Amazon you know with the amount of money it has no problem you know discounting these things maybe even more aggressively so I think people maybe this is part of what's at play here um, yeah. just hold on till November December absolutely, and then
1: go nuts on Amazon absolutely Luke I think there's a lot to be said for that I mean you know Being Scottish, uh, good value uh, is important to me. Um, (laughs) and, And my sense is, you know, you wouldn't buy any white good at the moment unless you had to. So the washing machine gives up, fine. Go and buy a washing machine. But if the washing machine can hold out until the end of the year, let's just see what happens to prices. And to your point I mean, as well, you know, we've got higher prices. We've got a greater awareness, uh, higher prices in terms of um, energy, electricity, etc. We've got a greater awareness of uh, household debt, and we've got a political backdrop that isn't particularly uh, helpful at the moment as well. So, look, I think it's understandable that we had the quarter that we had, but it does feel as if it extends into, uh, into the end of the year and potentially into next year as well. Well, it lies in uh, services for, the, uh, for GDP
2: and consumption. Indeed. We'll see how that comes out in a couple of weeks' time. Mm. Uh, and how's
0: the trade been looking? Um, uh, the, the, all the trade data is reasonably strong. I haven't, caught, I haven't caught up with it now in the last couple of months. but Well, it
2: looks like net trade flows were going out to GDP. I'm sure Rob can probably go and uh, talk you through them more accurately, but uh, certainly we've seen a rebound in commodity prices. Uh, yeah. Volumes uh, did pick up over the month of uh, 2020 volumes did pick up over the month of September uh, they've fallen back a little bit in October uh, it looks like but uh, no, it seems to be humming along nicely services uh, uh, exports in particular are doing very nice at the moment mm. uh, talking about things like tourism um, education so all in all the the external sector looks like it's doing pretty well for us, but uh no, obviously the most acute concerns still lie in the household, as the r b a said yes. earlier this week
0: yes and uh Dave you wrote um uh, what I thought was a very interesting piece, noting some of the comments from the r b a on exactly this household incomes This was in the statement household incomes are growing slowly, and debt levels are high um growth in housing debt has been outpacing the slow growth in household income for some time um I mean. They're kind of statements of the obvious, but at the same time, them being included in the governor's statement on rates is significant
2: in itself, right? Definitely. It's telling you as well that uh, the job for financial stability risk has not been quarantined yet. They're still concerned about it and they're not satisfied, and that's why they're putting those things in that statement. Uh, It's it's probably a gentle reminder too that – those thinking that uh, the interest rates might be cut again, like we saw when we had the low inflation period
0: last year, is probably going to be disappointed. And um, R- Robert, what's your base
1: case now on rates? Look, it's probably one of the more boring calls in the market, uh, potentially ever. Uh, unchanged this year, unchanged next year, unchanged the year after. Wow. Uh, and it really comes down to, I guess, it's a forecasting game. You know, We talked a bit about housing. We talked a bit about the consumer. I mean, all of this sounds tremendously negative, and I I don't want to come across too negative. Uh, You know, we've got jobs growth with a three handle on it. There's a possibility that um, in the statement of monetary policy, the RBA may actually forecast, uh, may cut their forward forecasts for the unemployment rate. Um, you know, very good liaison uh, that the RBA is receiving in terms of um, uh, the job situation. So I suppose if you're looking at uh, the Australian economy, uh, which is above trend this year on their forecast above trend next year. Um, you've got an, an unemployment situation that continues to improve. You've got a, a narrowing output gap. Therefore, inflation is heading up towards the, uh, the band, et cetera. You can understand where, why they're relatively optimistic. Mm. Our sense, though, is that, you know, that the household, uh, is more concerned about the finance situation, uh, that, that the hit from, uh, the rollover in terms of construction through, uh, residential, uh, will be more marked. Um, and, uh, you know, with – let's face it, when did we all receive a, a, a wage rise with limited wage pressures, uh, to uh, to put it mildly? Um, our sense is that we're not going to see above-trend growth through next year in, uh, in particular. Uh, therefore, market pricing, which wants to carry on pricing in that next hike – we all understand why, because the Bank of England is raising, the yeah. Bank of Canada has raised, et cetera. It feels as if there's more pressure. But when you deconstruct and put the Australian economy back together again, from our perspective, is it's just harder to find where that, um, that above-trend growth comes from through next year. Absolutely. And, uh, you
0: know, the, the RBA, I think, um, uh, has shown over the last few years uh, in the In a period since the crisis that um it, it doesn 't it it runs its own race um they 're very good at making sure that they um very focused on the you know yeah. they don 't get caught up in this uh, reflation, Correct. Um, uh conversation at all yes um and they they 've managed to strike a very even tone yep. um, on you know um we had uh, the governor's speech Speville um a couple of months back and all very sensible talking about you know um maybe it was a suggestion that workers might start to agitate for um, a bit of pay rises to help themselves. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that would be a very, very good thing. Yes. Um, but at the same time, uh, he pointed out that with all of the disruptions going on in the labour market and the more uh, volatile nature of work at the moment um, for when it comes down to the individual level, mm. um, it's you're not in a very good, very strong bargaining position when you think that, you know, um, your job might be um, under pressure for replacement by whether it 's automation or uh, offshoring or just through competition yeah. etc. Um, or somebody being willing to do the same job at a lower price. Um, you know, uh it, it does put people in a in a pretty um pretty tough position. Yeah.
2: Plus the evidence we've seen elsewhere in the world, you know, in other markets such as the United States, the UK, yeah. Japan where you've got uh, uh unemployment rates that are significantly lower and uh, and you know, obviously each country's got its own nuance as to what the full employment level would be. But uh We've not seen the same response in wages to what we've seen in the past with unemployment levels where they currently are. And that's something that uh, has to be kept in mind here, that uh, for all the talk that we're going to start seeing a gradual pickup in wage growth and whatnot, um, even if we do get it, those expecting that we're going to start seeing three handles, four handles per annum uh, in terms of wage increases, is going to be, you know, it'll take something absolutely spectacular
0: for Mm. that to go and occur. And um, unfortunately, I can't see that happening. Can Mm. I ask your take on this, uh, Rob, because... The inflation picture has been so has been you know, has like globally has had people scratching their heads, right? So you have this incredible level of job creation in the United States over the last few years yes. and very, very low levels of wage growth. I mean a little bit, um but but not and I think it was Janet Yellen yep. uh, actually said that maybe there 's something that we don 't underst- we don 't fully understand the inflation picture
1: hmm.
0: uh, what what 's your view here look
1: i mean you could you could devote hours, if not days to a topic like this um look i you know i think demographics play a large part i think we lost a lot of uh, workers potential workers through the financial crisis um and as the um uh, the work the working population has aged i think we've not Uh, suck those workers back in. You know, I think there's a lot of social aspects going on here as well. Uh, It's been a long time since we really got the the US economy to a situation where we replaced uh, a lot of those lost workers, uh, uh, lost jobs. And to be perfectly honest, uh, I think industries have changed. So I think we're we're underfunding um, uh, investment training, etc. I just don't think that the US economy has got a particularly good working model uh, for that. We've underinvested in um, infrastructure as well. And I just wonder whether, um, you know, the correct measure that we should be looking at, which, you know, we tend to think, you know, the um, uh, the headline unemployment measure or even U6 uh, uh, measure as well, which arguably is at low levels. I tend to look at things like um, employment to population um, and participation rates. Um, and I think really, I mean, you can argue over the, uh, the shape of... Um, uh, of you know uh, of curves etc. But I think that we're still in a situation where we've got you know part of the labour force is just simply not interacting with the uh... with the economy, and we've really got to suck an awful lot more workers into the situation you know into um uh into the workforce before that changes overlay globalization overlay technology you know whether it's amazonification or you know uber or you know the other technologies etc i just you know i just wonder where wage inflation is really going to come from so many constituent
0: parts to it and very very hard to point to any one single factor yep yeah. <laughs> You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest on the show this week is Robert Rennie, Global Head of Market Strategy at Westpac. Uh, this all leads us very nicely into um, looking at um, the overall global picture. One of the big things this week, David, iron ore, hmm? price went up. It did go up.
2: It's <laughs> a- amazing, isn't it? Um, oh, look, let, let's put things into perspective. I think it fell 40% between uh, no, uh, mid uh mid-September uh, and then uh, no, up until like this week. So it's a very, very small bounce, and I wouldn't be getting too excited about a, a huge breakout. Um, just watching the price action in Dalian Futures, um, which uh, obviously anyone who reads my iron ore stuff will know that I go and look at that index uh, very, very closely. I uh, did go and reach an area where there's found buying support in the past, and I think the market was very short-term short, and... Wooshka! uh, We had a big pop on Monday, and then it's
0: consolidating over those sort of levels now. Yeah. Um, Rob, um, I um, just in in terms of getting ready uh, for this um, today, I was looking at some of your work, and you've got some fascinating models Mm. um, for uh, looking at iron ore, steel demand, all of that kind Mm. of stuff. Can you explain some of that?
1: Yeah, look, I... I, uh, I mean, I love the uh, the work that David does and, you know, the, the, the volatility in this market is, um, absolutely staggering. Um, so I think we have to, when we think about r and as an asset class, we have to understand that, you know, some of it is real physical, but a lot of it is financial. Uh, and that adds a level, a level of volatility. Look, I tend to sort of think about, I, I run a bunch of, uh, bottom-up, um, uh, supply models. I run a bunch of, uh, bottom-up demand models. Uh, you then have to really understand the seasonality and, and we have to remember the Chinese economy there is tremendous seasonality you know they have different holidays they have different weather um, uh, uh, you know our ore is coming from various parts of the world uh, it's it 's long lead lag times, variable lead lag times, etc. But one of the things that I tend to do is look through the the, the headline. Um, you know, I remember re- reading uh, headlines for September Chinese imports. So you'd broken above 102 million. You know, it was 102 all time record mm. uh, import. And I'm sitting there going, hang on, um, seasonally adjusted, it's not a record. It's well short of the record. Uh, yesterday, we had le- headlines saying iron ore imports collapse in October. <laughs> uh, when you seasonally adjust them, they didn't actually collapse. If I seasonally adjust the data that we got, we went from 94 million tonnes to 87 million tonnes drop of 7 million tons on a month, size of you know the, the Chinese economy, not significant. And they were off on holidays for a week at the start and, of the month as uh, well. And, and we closed. So I actually looked at the data, and it was actually slightly above my bottom-up forecast. I thought mm. that actually was a, was a reasonable uh, uh, outcome. But again, you know, cut through the the headline and really understand what's going on. And this is where it's fascinating. And I know, Dave, you spend a tremendous amount of time uh, looking at 62% or 65% iron ore and then 58 that's exactly the right area to be looking because what China has done in the last year, last 18 months, is they've closed down inefficient, uh, illegal, in some situations, steel producers. Now, inefficient, illegal, they use a lot of scrap uh, uh, steel. They use low-grade iron ore. What you've then done, uh, and this is where the market, market misunderstands what's going on, you've added that on to the efficient, the big guys. So we look at the data out of China, and we see rising, rising, rising steel production. But essentially, we've taken steel that wasn't reported, added on, added mm. on to the, the mm. monthly total. So it feels like the, um, uh, you know, steel was in a good place. Um, but uh, what, it, what that does do is it gives you a tremendous premium for high-quality iron ore, Australia specializes in high-quality iron ore, as does Brazil. Mm. And the iron ore miners have done a great job of retiring low-quality iron ore and bringing on better volumes as well. And that, that story At lower costs. At much lower costs. Mm. And they've squeezed out the Indians, uh, you know, iron ore from Canada, etc. Lower-quality uh, iron ore is simply being removed from the market. So we've got a much, much more efficient iron ore supply. Uh, China is is demanding higher grade um, iron ore, steel prices continue to push up because we're closing down cheaper, less efficient steel production. So the point that I continue to make, and this is where I think the market is wrong on iron ore prices, at least in the near term, with steel prices, rebar prices are above 4,200 RMB a ton. You would literally in the last Fifteen twenty years, you've only really seen two or three occasions where we've been much above these levels. Right. We're talking super cycle highs. Yet steel prices in China are at enormously high levels. When I look at a unit of hot rolled or even rebar steel, put together the constituent parts of it, you know, a unit of iron ore, you know, x of uh, coke, you know, allow for FX, etc., these guys are making margins that they haven't seen in ten, twelve, thirteen years profitability is enormous. So whenever I hear somebody calling 40s for iron ore, at least in the near term, I just question where it's going to come from. Mm. I really, I don't think we have the dynamics. Now, as we move through next year, sure, I think the situation changes. But I tend to see iron ore very, very sticky in the in the early 60s. Uh, I think the late 50s, good demand because it's so cheap, it's so so efficient, and so profitable to to uh, produce that next unit of steel. Then, even though um, the um, the steel miner is being told by the uh, the central authority to cut back production because of weather, uh, etc. They're, they're going to be incentivized not to do it, or try and you know get round the uh, the curbs, etc. So it's very hard for iron ore to collapse at least in the near term when we've got these kind of dynamics. Super what, interesting. I was just yeah. going to ask, what it's probably what, a long answer? No, no, know. no. It's, it's, no, it's interesting,
2: and look, it's our largest export, largest good export. Yeah. So it, it's something that Australians should go and be really attuned with. I was going to ask you a question. With the grades, you discussed you now that the, there's been yeah. quite a huge spread that's gone and developed between those lower grades of so 58% yeah. and lower and what we're seeing with the benchmark 62 and 65 uh, have been performing well. Can you see that that spread narrowing by any significant margin, particularly with China at the moment, where they're implementing these uh, these environmental restrictions and it seems that they're very, very serious about oh, making sure whether, whether that gap will ever close? Because there's been a few things being talked about. Some miners who uh, produce lower grade iron ore have been not moaning but you know making a few a yeah. you know, few comments about it recently what's your more, opinion
1: yeah more than morning yeah definitely yeah. Um, look i think what ultimately you know you cannot be in a situation where you've got um, uh, you know cost curves in the in the mid to late teens and you're selling a product at you know 60 uh etc for too long hmm. so, so t- supply and demand has to catch up um, Real their last quarterly update, they reaffirmed their um, uh, their guidance. They were very, very clear on um, uh, guidance for the tail end of this year. I mean, I run a sort of a bottom up model for each of the uh, the iron ore producers here. I then seasonally adjust you know on a monthly basis so i 've got a forecast given the guidance that' we're, that we 're seeing. Uh, they reaffirmed their guidance for this year they're a calendar year basically real through the quarterly production and the uh, the guidance are basically telling you that they're going to have their best quarter river ever mm. by a number of percentage points. Mm. So we've got iron ore coming from Australia. Um, uh, S11D, which is this enormous mine uh, in uh, Brazil, super quality iron ore. Uh, in the last quarterly update from Vale, they reaffirmed their guidance for this year and next year. But basically, they are on a path towards... Retiring lower, less efficient iron mm. ore, bringing on the, uh, the the super high quality stuff, and I think it's ultimately that. As we move through next year, I do think that we could see a period of softness into the end of the year. Because remember, you know, when you look at the seasonal, the monthly or the quarterly seasonal factors, Q4 is not really the the, the season that you want to bring on an awful lot of supply. And Rio, again, from a, um, a guidance point of view, if they, if they meet their guidance, they're going to have an absolute zinger of a quarter. Um, and we've also got um, a, uh, Roy Hill coming on stream as well. Yeah, that wow. looks like it's producing at 55 million tonnes. Uh, it's name plate capacity through next year, too. Bottom line, there is more supply. Bottom line, yes, I think the simple to answer to your question is that there is a force that starts to narrow um, the spread between the two. But I think it takes a long time before uh, before we actually see it.
0: Yeah, natural. And, of course, this whole thing, with, you know, if you're dumping loads of iron ore into the market towards the end of the year, you get into Chinese New Year in the – um, and the winter months here. in particular,
2: Correct. so you know, yeah. slow down in the uh, construction sector in China. Right. So it's very cyclical, and you know, we start seeing the end of the uh, the first quarter. You know, volume start to go, you know, pick up, steel production picks up in, in anticipation. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, supply and demand dictates short term movements uh, and long term movements. And obviously, if we do that, uh, you're not going to go in, uh, and really help yourself in terms
0: of pricing. And mm-hmm. you get this this thing that you referred to earlier, Rob, which is this financialization of yep. um, of, of those of Iron ore market, but also all sorts of commodities. I saw um, uh, a comment during the week. Um, Look, I have no idea if this is true, but he was talking to. It was somebody um, talking about a commodity broker that they had spoken to, who was um, selling volatility on rapeseed oil. Um, (laughs) So you know, basically, you know, this thing about there's two parts to that. One is. You know, you, you can sell volatility on almost anything at the moment, um, but, but but then also uh, it speaks to the financialization of of, of yep. Chinese commodity markets yep. and how prices yep. have become a lot more volatile. Um, yep. Well. Selling volatility and then going straight into t- <laughs> to talking about volatile pricing action, um, but uh, it um, it certainly has become like in literally in the last two years, um, yep. it has really um, really changed, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, look, uh, what we have to remember here is suddenly you know China was a price taker; they're a price maker, mm. and we haven't seen that before. And they're going to carry on being a price maker. Can I ask you um, with uh,
0: Xi Jinping's very clear consolidation sure. of his own authority and power? Um, and um, the a lot of the activity in the Chinese economy having been helped over the last couple of years by this large levels of infrastructure mm. spend, and they've also had very strong property market. Um, for you, what is the impact of that in terms of looking forward over the next um, over the next couple of years? Yeah,
1: look, message from National People's Congress, message from Xi was very very clear. You know, we understand that uh, there is, whether it's an iron fist or not, uh, you know, there is very clear guidance um, coming from him as to what the economy looks like going forward. Um, our sense is that we have a modest, you know, a continuation of the um, uh, modest slowing in uh, Chinese growth. I think that's very, very natural. Uh, they've got a debt issue that they need to deal with um, in uh, in coming years. Uh, and I think that we will see you know, modest tightening in terms of uh, financial conditions, but emphasis on the modest. We're not going to see the same policies, which were we've got a problem, let's throw a bunch of liquidity and we don't really care where it ends <laughs> up. It's going to be very much a controlled uh, process that we will see going on. Do you think um, we might see some kind of Chinese version of QE of or – uh, I don't I, look I, I don't think it's necessary I think by by um uh, constraining uh liquidity constraining credit availability and making sure that you are aggressively regionally macroprudential controlling um uh you know particularly sectors of the property market etc or others that potentially need to be because remember those controls can extend to commodity speculation if required um you know it's very clear that the regulator has um, uh, You know, has uh, focused on uh, areas of speculation in various different markets over the last couple of years. Um, So, you know, by continuing to control very carefully, incrementally slowing, but making sure that uh, the quality of growth continues to uh, to improve. You know, it's a modest sequential, but it's not a particularly exciting. Sorry. Um, yeah. Outlook. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: so, look, I've got a couple of minutes left. I want to skip over um, two important things. One is oil. Yep. Um, uh, Middle East, um, yep. uh, Crown Prince, Mohammed yep. bin Salman, massive consolidation of yep. power, a whole bunch of princes arrested. Yep. Um, uh, and Billionaires. You know, yeah. And, mm. You know, them being arrested means being put up in the Ritz in Riyadh. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, There's um, arrest and arrest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah you know uh stay in in the presidential suite and no you can't have your falcon yeah. um yes. but uh, a, a really amazing uh very swift very rapid yeah. very dramatic uh move and um, we've also got this situation in Yemen a yeah. missile being fired at Riyadh um yeah. by god knows who yeah. um looks like these uh, this rebel group in in, in Yemen um but there's a bit of talk about them being supported by the Iranians, and you know, and you get, yeah. then you get into Hezbollah and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, Middle East, all of a sudden, looking complex and messy again. Yep. Um, it's, uh, as you know, somebody helpfully pointed out, you know, it's time for all these Middle East experts to start coming out yes, of the woodwork
1: yeah. again, and all the pretend ones as well.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um, but we can look at the prices. Yep. Um, so, uh, um, yeah. So oil, yeah, a little bit of a rally.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I've been pretty optimistic on crude within. Uh within reason, um, you know, we have to remember put prices in the U.S. up by 2 or $3 and then the fracking community switches on. Mm. We're definitely seeing evidence of that. In fact, last night's EIA data showed a fresh all-time record uh, for U.S. weekly crude production, I think 9.62, 9.63, something like that. Um, so suddenly, you know, the crude price jumps up by a couple of bucks, three, four, five bucks, bang, that thing comes on. But look at the fundamentals going in. Ignore Saudi for the moment. Um, the U.S. has become an enormous um, U.S. crude exporter. In the last couple, the last three, four weeks, we're running at two million barrels. Two million barrels per day. Record. Absolute record. You're eighth in terms of global exporters. Uh, U.S. is importing much, uh, much, much, much lower levels of crude. Um, uh, Saudi exports to the U.S. are down. I ran through the numbers this morning, I think off the top of my head, down forty odd percent on a three month, year year basis, yep. You know wide open mouth um, inventory, if you look at the deviation of inventory from its I run a a kind of a, a basic model which is deviation of current level of inventory from its five year average for the u s it 's down to the lowest levels that we 've seen since the beginning of fifteen and when you look around globally, yes, of course, we still have a big glut of crude in tankers you know etc yeah. around the world, but the rate of change has got a negative sign in front of it, and it 's beginning to accelerate. So I'm absolutely of the view, even without um, the development society, we were going to hit sixty dollars, potentially slightly plus. The one thing that um, you know that the spread between West Texas and Brent is widening, and that tells me that the frackers are out there selling the um, the strip in terms of West Texas. So think Brent, watch Brent. Rents up thirty percent year year. You know when I think what what's a risk out there? we talked about um, you know higher crude prices. We're seeing higher metal prices. You know copper seven thousand, nickel thirteen thousand, cetera. Gas prices. I was looking at a chart of gas prices earlier on today. You know we're seeing uh, LNG prices in Asia eight and a half nine dollars. Mm. I mean I remember looking at LNG prices in Asia back in twenty fifteen. I would have seen four and a half to five. five. Mm. So we're paying off. You know coal prices. Um, uh, API2, which is um, uh, uh, European coal, that's trading $93. We haven't been at these levels back to – I think I'd have to go back to 2013 to see higher levels. You know, so higher crude, higher coal, higher uh, uh, metals, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But bond markets have got a very different view on inflation and inflation risks. I'm definitely watching this a bit more. I mean, one of my key calls for Q4 was you know, crude 60 plus. Um, and suddenly the bond market goes, whoa, where did that one come from? As yeah. we did last year, you go from 25 to 50. And the bond market went, oh, don't like that at all. It's not happening at the moment. Curves are flattening. Uh, tips are not moving at all. Forward inflation swaps, if anything, are heading in the opposite direction. So the bond market's looking in one direction. Commodities. I think you just got to keep a bit of a closer eye on yeah. uh, crude developments, and then you overlay all of your geo, you know, crude geopolitical risks. Who who knows what might happen yeah. if something goes wrong and supply does become interrupted? Now, again, you've got to remember the frackers are out there, so there's and an, an ab- huge capacity, absolute yeah. limit. But even within the limits, even within the confines of of West Texas being capped, if Brent squeezes a bit further, you know, to me, I think that's uh, uh, that's an axis to keep an. Absolutely. Look, really interesting. Um, I do want to ask you one quick thing.
0: We didn't get to everything, but um, I know you've been looking at this new set of um, very important uh, uh, financial regulations for the European market, uh, referred to as MIFID II. Uh, sounds like some kind of ballistic missile, um, but it is. Uh, I was in London, as I mentioned, a few weeks ago, and this was all anybody was talking about in f- um, financial circles. Um, you've been looking at it for Australia. Uh, can you give us maybe just a couple of quick bullet points, this, and then we got to go?
1: Is this a one-hour or a two-hour?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Extended
1: edition. <laughs> edition. Uh, exactly, bumper Strap edition. Strap in, everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, markets in financial instruments directive number two, um, so-called because there was a one, and one looked at uh, equity. Uh, two widens the definition of a financial product to literally everything that we could really ever talk about. Um, The the onus is on the asset manager um, uh, that ultimately uh, is there to protect the uh, the customer, to make sure that they are uh, best execution, um a, that information that they are receiving from uh, banks uh etc uh, around the world do not influence their decision as to where to allocate uh, uh, uh- Individual trades, etc. So, you know, the buzzword certainly in my world, from a, a, a you know financial market commentary and insight point of view, is unbundling of that material. Um, so, essentially, the consumer of that material, the asset manager, has to pay for the information, and that removes their liability from a regulatory point of view. Now, as ever with these legislations. They're very vague. Um, definitions are open to interpretation, and the timeline is extremely aggressive. Um, we're talking Jan three, um, and I somehow doubt that everyone in, in you know that is. Pr- making prices, delivering material, uh, you know, insights, um, uh, commentary, et cetera, to these uh, investors, somehow I doubt we're really going to be in a situation where every everybody is ready for uh, for Gen 3. It's certainly something we're going to look at a little bit more closely on Business
0: Insider um, over the coming weeks because really uh, in Australia I haven't heard much talk about it at all. But my understanding is that if you're dealing with particularly European financial institutions that you will have some regulatory uh, requirements, uh, new regulatory requirements come the new
1: year. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and they are very, I mean, I, my world is the, uh, you know, is the commentary, it's the economics, et cetera. You know, my world is just a very, very small, a very small part, a very small part indeed. It's the reporting of transactions, um, the reporting of, um, uh, of pricing, um, the, the, the ability to deconstruct and reconstruct a price that you made today, yesterday, and X number of years ago at, you know literally at the, uh, the, the the press of a button mm-hmm. um, it 's the proof of uh, best execution, etc we really are talking about a very major um, uh, set of legislation vague open to interpretation etc, but particularly around the uh, the reporting um, a, a you know it 's very very clear it has a major impact. And arguably, it um, you know it's something that we'll be talking about not just through the end of this year, but um, but into next year as well. And remember, these asset managers, most of the asset managers tend to have a global model. So anything that they do, um, it, you know, if they're allocating trades to European customers as well as other customers, it's impacted. And if they have a global PM model, you know, it, it doesn't matter that it's outside of um, Europe, um, you know, unless they segregate everything, which would be extremely onerous, um, they are captured globally. So it has an impact on Asia. It has an impact on us as well. And um, yeah, you know, it's a big part of my life and I've got a team um, that's, you know, has been focused on this for many, many months and I'm, kind of assuming we'll probably be carrying on throughout next year as well. Well, it's good that you're
0: aware of it because, you know, obviously, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, there's a certain group of people down in Canberra um, who are kind of running around saying, well, look, I didn't really realise that that rule was that (laughs) important or it was, you know, that strict. Um, But look, certainly Mifid too. um, uh, And um, Rob, thanks very much for sharing the brief insight on that. And um, uh, we'll definitely be coming back to this at some point. Um, You've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest on the show this week has been Robert Rennie, Global Head of Market Strategy at Westpac. Rob, thanks so much for coming on the show. A pleasure. Uh, and we've been here, as always, with David Scott.
2: Fantastic to be back. And, uh, yeah, fantastic to go and have a chat with Rob. You'll be back. Thank you.
0: We are back next week, and our guest will be Jordan Alisio who is um, head of strategy and, uh, uh, and economics at ABC Bullion. And we're going to talk gold and cryptos and inflation, and it's going to be a whole stack of fun. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. You can find us on iTunes, uh, where you can rate us, leave us a review. Um, we're also on your podcast platform of choice, at Devils and Details. The show has been produced by Rick Salter, and we'll catch you next time.
2: Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at ozpost.com.au slash podcast. That's ozpost.com.au slash podcast.